many of the medicines that we have nowadays were discovered by scientists going to indigenous cultures and looking for traditional cures. My argument is let's religio prospect. Let's go and look for practices that have been designed to help people with grief, to help them parents bond to children, and see if we can adapt those. Welcome back to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, the Executive Director, and today in a world teeming with questions and uncertainty, we're going to zone in on the subject of spirituality. David DeSteno, a psychologist at Northeastern University, studies the mind's foundation for moral behavior. And he's been looking at the science behind the benefits of religion. His research suggests that people who engage in spiritual practices and rituals regardless of faith, tend to live longer and happier lives. Well, for some people, this provides sufficient proof that God works, whereas others, more, more, more skeptical people, might well ask, well, what's the science behind this? And can one not enjoy the benefits by just going through the motions of ritual without buying into the whole belief system? Welcome, David. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me on. I'm Okay, your book deftly combines science and spirituality, which is not too easy to do. <laughs> you say that uh, you don't have to be religious to benefit from the treasure trove of wisdom that you say religion offers us, since many of the tools work on the mind outside of belief. So in essence, regardless of the underlying theology, religious rituals work. So my question is, are we not just playing tricks on the mind and does it not fuel the agnostic argument? I don't think so. Um, I think one of the big problems we face is the tension between science and religion. Then, you know, that tension has had its, its vicissitudes over time. But at this moment in time, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at a tension that's been exacerbated, especially by folks in the new atheist movement to say all of religion is a folly. And what I like to say is just as ancient doesn't always mean wise, neither does it always mean naive. And I think it would be hubristic of scientists, social scientists like myself, I'm not saying we're going to learn anything about the nature of the universe from religion, to ignore a huge body of knowledge that was designed to focus on helping people. Now, let me make clear, I'm not an apologist for religion. Religion can serious, can, can clearly cause problems. But the way I think about it to get to your question is these aren't tricks on the mind. I think of them more as tools or strategies or life hacks to use a, a, a common term. In some ways, that's what psychologists do all the time. A lot of our work, and if you go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble, you'll see lots of books with tricks that you can do to make yourself happier, improve your health, make you sleep better, find connection to people. The argument that I'm making is a lot of the elements of religious ritual, if we put theology aside, and I'm not saying theology is not important, belief in in a higher power has its own benefits. But if we put that to the side and we stop arguing about theology, which I think is where we tend to get to our corners and and yell at each other, just like Democrats and Republicans, you know, atheists and, and, and people of faith, Let's not ask that question. Science cannot answer whether or not God exists. Even atheism is a belief in the sense on faith that probability favored us in this corner of the universe. Because we can't answer that, 
let's not argue about it. Let's look at what we can do together. And there it's looking at, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, parts of rituals and the way they leverage aspects of our physiology, of our mind to help us deal with grief, become more ethical, become more compassionate, all the things that we agree on to live better lives. And so I don't think they're tricks on the mind. I think they're tools. Now you can think of these tools as having resulted from some divine inspiration, or you can think of them as resulting from just thousands of years of people trying stuff out and seeing what works. And I think we have to respect each other's views on that because, again, that's something we can't answer. But you don't have to know the origin of a technology to use it. I use my iPhone. I have no idea how it was developed, yet it lets me connect with people all over the world. And the argument I make in this book is let's look at these. You know, we've done this as a society with meditation. We know meditation decreases stress, um, makes people improves their memory, lowers their blood pressure. I'll talk about today how it actually increases kindness and compassion. My question is, what's the next mindfulness? There has to be something out there if we're willing to look. And this book is an attempt for me to kind of chart that across the, across the lifespan. So everybody can make use of it, whether you believe in something beyond the practice yeah. So there are ways that you can extract elements of these. And, you know, the trick is to always do it in a way that is that honors the original source. But I think of it as if within certain certain prayers or certain rituals, people do certain things with their bodies, with their breath, ways they interact with each other, those elements, and you'll see them in lots of different faiths, can be abstracted and adapted and used in you know, non-religious context. To me, that is not cultural appropriation. It's not, you're not taking the prayers, you're not taking the actual symbols of a culture or a group and using them for purposes of which they were never intended. You're looking to ways that they leverage the mechanisms of our mind and our bodies. You know, the, the metaphor I use in the book is many of the medicines that we have nowadays, uh, medicines to fight cancer and some others, were discovered by scientists going to to uh, indigenous cultures and looking for traditional cures. And sure, a lot of them didn't work, but some did. That was called bioprospecting. My argument is let's religio prospect. Let's go and look for practices that have been designed to help people with grief, to help people through transitions to adulthood, to help them parents bond to children and see if we can adapt those. And what got me down this road is a lot of the things that I, I've been running a, sci a psychology lab for 30 years. A lot of the things that I see myself and my colleagues discover, when I look around, I see them already being used in rituals and spiritual practices the world over. Now, sure, those people who developed them couldn't scan your brain and they couldn't run randomized control trials to see if these things worked, yet they've assembled them into packages in ways that we can now science explain why they work. But that means there's probably a lot else out there that we should be looking at and examining. So we're not starting from scratch, as you said. Mm. So in talking about these various fields and denominations and cultures that utilize certain practices that you say benefit us, mm -hmm. can you talk us through a few of those? Sure. Um, one example that I like to start with is, you know, something that unfortunately all of us face, which is, which is losing someone, right? We all, no matter who you are in life, you're going to lose someone who is close to you and you're going to go through a period of mourning. All religious rituals 
have, sorry, all religious traditions have mourning rituals. So let's look at some and see how they help us. One thing that's pretty common is the use of eulogies. Now you might say, well, Dave, yeah, of course, we always talk about what was great about the person who passed. But if you think about it, it's kind of strange. If I just lost a job that I liked or got dumped by my significant other, I wouldn't want to spend the time thinking about why that job was so great that I no longer have or why this person who I thought was great dumped me. Thinking about that is going to increase the pain that I feel. Yet we do it all the time when somebody dies. And what this is work by George Bonanno, who's one of the world's leading resilience and grief researchers. Um, George's work shows that one of the primary predictors of moving through grief, so you don't want to deny grief, but you want to move through it in a way that it doesn't become too intense or go on too long so that it becomes paralyzing. One thing he's found is the ability to solidify positive memories of the person who has passed is the primary predictor for who can move through grief versus who gets stuck in elevated states of, of depression and anxiety. And so that's one way you can see the rituals working, but there's lots of others. So take the religious ritual of Shiva, if you're Jewish. Another primary predictor for moving through grief successfully is getting instrumental support. Now, what do I mean by that? It's, it's not social support. It's not like how many followers you have on Facebook. Hmm. It's who actually shows up when you need them and is there to do things for you and support you. So in, in Shiva, visiting the, the mourners, bringing them food, helping them out is a mitzvot, which means it's not something nice. It's a sacred obligation. You must do it. When you're there, groups of 10 or more Jews get together and say uh, prayers in what's called a minion, which is 10 people or more. Then when they do this, they will sing, they will, sorry, recite the prayers often swaying and chanting together. What we know is synchronized movement together makes people feel closer to one another. We also have experimental work that if I take two people and I have them simply move in time, even just tapping their hands on a table together, not talking, not doing anything else, they will feel more similar to one another. And when I stick one of them in an unfortunate situation, the other one becomes by about 30% more likely to go and help that person. It's just an ancient marker of our, our purposes are joined. We see this in flocks of birds and schools of fish. It's the same thing in humans. When people cover mirrors, at Irish wakes, you'll see they'll cover mirrors, but at, at Shiva and certain Hindu ceremonies, they cover mirrors. It seems like an odd custom. There's scientific work showing that no matter what emotion you're feeling, if you look into a mirror, it intensifies it. So at a time of grief, if you look into a mirror, you will feel more grief, more depression, more anxiety. So covering the mirrors, even though there's a theological reason for it, it actually reduces the amount of grief people are feeling. In Shiva, people also sit on low stools or on the floor. Well, because of the way our bodies are constructed, if you do that for any extended period of time, you will get lower back pain or knee pain or leg pain, which is relieved when you get up. There's new neuroscience work that shows mild onsets and offsets of discomfort, not only reduce grief, but reduce rumination, right? Something else that you do when you're grieving. And these rituals package all of these things together in an amazing way that psychologists have never done. We might give you one or two life hacks, but this is a package, you know, where we're playing single notes, these rituals are playing symphonies. Another is Rosh Hashanah. So 
the the Jewish high holy days, the 10 days, the days of awe, the period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur kind of signify Rosh Hashanah is, is the new year and Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. And it kind of symbolizes the cycle of birth to death. But on both days, one of the things that happens uh, in prayer services is people say a prayer called the, the Unatana Tokef. And as part of this prayer, people say, who will live, who will die, who will die before their time in the coming year, who will die by fire, who will die by sword, who will die by flood, who will die by plague, which you might have originally thought, well, who dies by plague anymore? But unfortunately, we, we can see just how you know, susceptible we all are. Why are we thinking about death on the day of the new year? Same thing with um, Ash Wednesday, if you're, if you're Christian or Catholic, the day before Lent, and at the start of the Lenten period, which is a time for self-reflection, much as the Jewish days of awe are, you go before the priest who will take ashes and put them on your forehead in the sign of the cross and say, from dust you came to dust you'll, you'll return. Now, these seem kind of morbid. Why do we do it? Well, we know that reminders of death, not that you're going to die immediately, but that death's uncertainty that you can die, reorient people's values. They, they It moves us from wanting to focus on our own careers, our own individual achievements, to connecting with others, to looking for opportunities to service, to doing things that are really socially meaningful. Across the lifespan, you see this happen when people get into their 60s and 70s, um, because at that point, your time horizon to death suddenly becomes a little more real. But it happens for people when they're even facing plagues in in the SARS uh, epidemic in China, we saw this. What happens is by reorienting us toward wanting to spend time with one another, to wanting to serve one another, to sacrifice, those are the true ways to find happiness. You know, typically research shows that when Americans want to be happier, they go and buy something or they try and develop a new skill or something that's kind of like me, me, you know, focused on me individually. And I'm not saying that's always wrong. There are certainly benefits for that, but it's not what truly brings happiness in the long run. And so what we're seeing by these rituals is by that simple reminder it reorients people in this time of reflection, whether it's the Jewish days of awe or the Lenten period, to reorient your values. You know, Thomas Akempis, the medieval um, Christian scholar, urged people every day to contemplate how you should you live your life if you were going to die that evening. And I think if we all did that, it would it would make life better. One other last one I'll I'll, I'll touch on is you know the idea of of meditation. If you you know read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Harvard Business Review, you'll think, yeah, meditation is great. It makes you more productive at work. It reduces your stress. It increases your SAT scores. That's not why it was created. Meditation was created as a tool to reduce suffering, both your own and of all sentient beings in the wider world. And so while it does all these other things, enhances your memory and your focus, they're all in service of allowing you to find space in your consciousness, to sit with feelings that are positive and negative and to open up that space rather than running your mind continually. And when you do that, it makes you more willing to reach out and be kind, not only to yourself, but to others. And so, you know, we have experimental evidence where we bring people in. We put this, you know, this, this idea to the test. After eight weeks of meditation, we brought them to our lab and we said to them, we're going to test your memory in a few minutes. Why don't you just sit here in the waiting room? And so they sat in the waiting room with two other people who were actors who worked for us. And then we had another actor come in and she was on crutches, fake. 
she didn't really need them, but she was on crutches and she had a, a boot on her foot and she was wincing in pain. The two actors ignored her much as you might do if you're on the T in Boston or on the subway and not wanting to give up your comfy seat. And we thought, well, what will the person in our study do? Will they be kind to her? Will they give them her seat? Will they ask her if she needs help? Whereas only about 16% of people did this normally in the waiting room, individuals who we had randomly assigned to meditate for eight weeks, that jumped up to 50%. That's a huge change. And so this is like a kindness technology. Lots of religions say it's good to be kind. Here's a tool to do it. And so, you know, there's lots of others we could talk about, but the idea here is these things leverage these tools, these practices, leverage our physiology, leverage our body, nudge our mind in certain ways to help us get the outcomes we want. So religions aren't just about, you should do this, you should believe this. But if you're engaged with those practices regularly, they give you the tools to do it, which is why the data you were pointing out in the beginning, which, which it, it's not my data, but it's data from lots of, from Pew and from the Harvard Flourishing Initiative that shows that it's not saying you believe in God that makes you happier and healthier. It's the people who regularly live the faith, who day-to-day engage with these practices. And I think that's the important part, right? These are the tools that make those things happen. And many of these tools can be utilized outside of their religious context to help us all. You are listening to Cambridge Forum as we consider how God works, the science behind the benefits of religion, with psychologist Professor David DeSteno from Northeastern University. Well, I think as you've raised a couple of interesting points there, one is um, this whole thing of the some of the things that you mentioned that are most effective and beneficial to our, to our mental and physical uh, health came from physical contact, from moving and swaying, from singing together, from touching. These are very human instinctual things. And I'm wondering down the road how this virtual church thing is going to pan out in the long term. Yeah, it's a really good, you know, Facebook right now is really getting into the business of trying to, to, to optimize your religious mobile experience. And there are two things I worry about with that. One is if we try to tailor things too closely. So like, let's say, you know, let's say, Mary, you decide that the perfect type of spirituality for you is you know, 75% Catholicism, 20% Judaism, and we throw in a few indigenous rituals there. And that's, that makes sense to you. If we tailor things too closely, too particularly, then it's hard to have a community where we kind of all agree on, on, on how to do something in a way that kind of binds us into a community. And so part of it I worry about is in trying to optimize things individually. Are we preventing the community element. And the community element isn't the only way that religion helps people live better lives, but it certainly is, is one. The other is what happens when we're not physically co-present with each other. So, you know, even if you and I are just next to each other, our bodies will begin to entrain on one another. There are these wonderful rituals. Well, I shouldn't say wonderful. They're actually kind of intense pain rituals, like, like fire walking. Um, and then there's one anthropologist named Demetrius Zygalatis at University of Connecticut who studies this. And what he shows is that the ritual isn't just for the person who's committing to doing the fire walking, it's for the audience as well. So when you're there, he, he would put sensors on people to measure their heart rate. 
as they're getting ready to walk across the fire, the heart and respiration rates of the person doing it and the audience begin to lock. Okay. Now they'll, they'll lock more to the extent that they know each other, but even among strangers, they begin to entrain and lock. And after they do it, and so even for the people who are watching it, it's kind of like almost this transcendent experience. Sometimes they can't even remember what else is going on. It, it, they lock into it. And afterward, they all report that they all feel like brothers and sisters and, and, it's, community, and it's a community, just physical co-presence in that way. Even if you're not doing things together, our bodies pick up on the signals of each other. Nonverbal stuff. When we're together, you can see my face now everybody watching, but you can't see my posture. You can't see what I'm doing with my arms, how I'm tilting. All of those things, we have lots of scientific data for interpret, affect what you think of me, what you're thinking I'm thinking of, how we're communicating, et cetera. Those things fall by the wayside online too. And a lot of these mechanisms rely on, 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 on physiology or other ritual and symbolic nudges in space. So why do you kneel? when you're hearing things from, from the altar or from any religious deist. There's a great study that shows if you present people information on a screen that's elevated, that's at their eye level, or that's at below them, and it's facts that you know they're unsure about, they tend to put more weight in the facts that are on the higher screen by a little bit. Why is that? It's because our bodies physiologically know if we're lower and we're looking up, that thing looking up means whatever we're looking at is higher in status, has more expertise. So when we kneel, whether we're Muslims kneeling uh, for prayer or Christians kneeling in church or in other religions kneeling, the messages we're getting from on high, we're more likely to believe by a little bit. Now, I'm not saying someone's going to tell you something he's going to brainwash you. No, but for lots of these things that you're not sure where you come down on, it can shift the needle a little bit in one direction or another. It's again, a little nudge to your mind. How's that going to work when I'm looking at the screen where there aren't, I'm not kneeling, things aren't. And so all these rituals were designed for a body next to other bodies in a physical space. And they work wonderfully there. I don't know what's going to happen when we're going to be on screens. It's going to be an interesting year for you guys to study from a psychological yeah. perspective. Okay, let me go to a, a, an article. We were talking about the state of play in the nation vis-a-vis -vis organized religion and the moral compass. Mm -hmm. And The Economist had this really good piece, feature piece last week on the cult of perfectionism in the young mm -hmm. in this country and that we have this growing sense of non-forgiveness for ourselves, never mind somebody else. So I'm wondering how that translates. If you can't forgive yourself, how, how are you going to forgive anybody else? So because this consumption and, and focus on self and ego is so consuming, do you think it blurs us from the bigger picture? Is that part of it? Yeah, I, I think it I think it certainly does. And it also creates a lot of anxiety. I mean, you see this in, in young people now. Uh, it's not just perfectionism, what you do, but it's perfectionism in, in how you look, especially how you look on social media. And there's lots of work suggesting that the more time certain in certain ways people spend on young people spend on social media, the more anxiety provoking it, it might be, although there are nuances to that data. Um, yeah, I think the ability to forgive yourself, the ability to have compassion for yourself in the sense that I'm not perfect. 
in two ways this matters. One again goes back, it harkens back to the idea I was talking about before, which is trying to maximize every decision. It's trying to worry about every little thing rather than saying, I'm good enough, God loves me, my parents love me, I love me. Any ritual that makes you feel calm and good and proud of your own, of your own self, that, that, that kind of reinforces your self-worth is good and is necessary. Compassion, right? Meditation creates compassion for the self and for the world around us. And again, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying this is like some new age guru, right? I'm saying this, but we actually have data, right? So my job is to look for what I think are interesting ideas in religion and to see scientifically if they're born out and how we can use that to help people. And we see that people have more compassion for themselves. And that's one way by which meditation reduces anxiety and messages about, you know, how much, how much God loves you, how important you are. And so I think one thing that, that, you know, people will say, well, you know, Dave, but isn't, isn't Christianity all about how you're flawed, right? You know, original sin and the like, and yes, there is that element to it, but the idea behind it is that we're striving to become something better and we're using these tools to do that. And even if you're not perfect, it's not that God disdains you, it's that God loves you. And it's the same thing in other religions as well. Even, even the idea of transcendence for a lot of people in, in, in Hindu experience or, or, or in indigenous experiences, that experience of transcendence is a welcoming, a connection to the divine. That's how they interpret that feeling. And that will only happen if, if God if you believe in God, sees you as worthy. And lots of people talk about it as this overwhelming sense of being loved. And there's not much better feeling in the world than that. And so I think a lot of the practices and rituals are designed to help us love ourselves and love other people. And by tamping down our desire and our anxiety about being perfect and always trying to maximize our own outcomes. Couple of questions Mm -hmm. that came in. What are the pros and cons of social media and religion? Somebody else has asked, what is your own personal experience with spirituality, healing, and the power of prayer? Yeah, I think, I think we kind of touched on the social media one. I talk about, I think, the ways that, that um, personalizing things and, and doing things can be uh, problematic. My, you know, my own person, so I, you know, I was raised Catholic. I, I was an altar boy. Um, and then I went to college and I was, was I going to be a religious studies major, not to be, not in a theological way, not to, to be a practicing minister or, or a priest, but to kind of study world religions. Cause I just thought it was fascinating. Or was I going to be a psychologist? And I decided I'd be a psychologist because I could run experiments and I could get data instead of just arguing about ideas about whether God exists, which I felt like God was getting me in circles. Um, and I kind of had the hard nosed psychologist scientist idea, which was, I never would say that that was a hardcore atheist, but I just didn't give religion much heed. I stopped going to church. I, I just didn't think about it a lot. And now I'm kind of coming back to the questions that, that fascinated me, the questions that my work in science, what makes people happy, what makes them more ethical, et cetera, has led me back to this idea that religion isn't always just about what you believe. I mean, it is but it's also about what you do 
And again, that's why it's, it's living a religious life. Doing those practices are what can improve life, even if we take those practices and secularize them, right? Um, and so where am I now in my spiritual journey? I don't know. I have to say I'm, I'm agnostic. I, I don't know what's out there. And I'm humble enough to say that. Who knows where I'll end up? But I, I, I have a newfound appreciation for the, for the wisdom in many of these in many of these practices. Well, uh, believe it or believe it not, Dave, our hour is almost up. So um, I want to thank you so much for uh, talking about all this stuff, research that went into your book, The Science Behind the Benefits of Religion, with psychologist David DeSteno from Northeastern University. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Cambridge Forum is made possible by the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, Mass Cultural Council, City of Cambridge, and you. So step up and donate via the website cambridgeforum.org where you will find a podcast of this program shortly and details of upcoming programs. Thanks for listening 